0: All right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space, episode ten oh nine, for the week of Monday, September twenty fourth, twenty eighteen. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene.
1: Hey, Sawyer. We're just kind of slogging through this. Uh, we've got we're suffering the, uh, the ravages of a, of a little bit of a head cold here, but we'll uh, we'll, we'll get uh, we'll get through this because there's a lot here to talk about.
0: Oh, absolutely. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hey, everybody. Glad to have you back with us. The last one, we Gene and I were so excited after the Parker Solar Probe launch that the two of us just said, we're going to get on right after launch. We're going to record these next two special parts. And we just got those episodes done and recorded, and we're very proud of them. And we hope you'll get a chance to go back and listen to them on our coverage at the press site of the launch of the Parker Solar Probe. And don't forget, Part 3 will be coming out after this episode. But we haven't done a news episode in quite a while, and there's a lot of space news to get to. But before we do that, we also do want to mention that Kat Robinson will be joining us very shortly, and she will have some special content the next time she joins us, as she is currently in Bremen, Germany, for the 2018 International Astronautical Congress, or IAC. So we have some great stuff coming from that in a few episodes. But for now, let's start off with our launch roundup, and we'll begin with SpaceX. Uh, So since we've been gone, SpaceX has had a few big things going on, and we'll get to their large announcement coming up. But let's start with the first launch that already happened, that was Telstar 18V, or 18 Vantage. That launched from Space Launch Complex 40 in Cape Canaveral, Florida, back on September 10th at 12.45 a.m., delivering successfully the communication satellite into a geostationary orbit. Why am I mentioning this? No reason. It's kind of a normal launch, which that's the great thing about SpaceX right now, is all their launches seem pretty routine. It's just, oh, another launch, another success, another successful booster landing, you know, on, of course, I still love you, the barge floating in the ocean. Which, good for them for making it something so crazy seems so mundane
1: yeah so they're really starting to get into a good cadence and and they're starting to get i think they're starting to get confidence in their systems confidence in their their the way they're doing stuff and uh it's it's showing and uh uh, you know so they've got a good launch cadence going they're going to be giving people a good run for their money next year i think and uh uh, there will be definitely one of the uh, launch service providers to be dealt with in the future. Uh, if, if, if they stay within, you know, that that parameter, you know, trying to satisfy customers, trying to go ahead and make sure, you know, they get, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be like, you know, when it absolutely positively has to be there, you know, it has to be in a low Earth orbit. You know, they're going to be get, getting to be that kind of company. And, uh, uh, you know, hats off to them. Um, if, if they keep this cadence up, they're going to be, uh, you know, it's not the number of launches. It's the number of successes you got under your belt. And, uh, they're really starting to make this, you know, look embarrassingly easy and it's not by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Yeah. And the good news is, is that their number of launches and their number of successes are growing concurrently. That's the big thing is that not only are they launching more, but all of them have been successful so far this year knock on wood yeah exactly and again i mean when you and i were at the parker solar probe launch we were eating lunch and just in comes a falcon 9 booster that had landed a few days before and all the people that were at the restaurant were just like oh another spacex booster when did that one go off yeah exactly For them, it was no big deal. You know, they see it all the time. Whereas we're like, my God, that's a SpaceX first-stage booster coming in on a barge that was, you know, in space two days ago. That,
1: that thing had, had an interesting pedigree, if I'm not not mistaken, sorry. That was one of the, the first—that uh, was actually, I think, the first time that that, uh, that particular booster had been reused.
0: Right, That that had flown twice. And now that they've got the Block 5 boosters, which are all reusable and are all meant to be a quick turnaround— it's going to be a whole nother deal. Because again, those landing legs fold up. While they have not been able to successfully refold them to fly them again yet, they're working on it. And once they can just fold the legs up and just send it down the road for some touch-ups, they're going to be flying those, you know, each of those boosters will be flying, you know, a month, two months after its first flight. We should mention also their next launch is currently scheduled for October 6th at 7.22 p.m. Pacific time. 10.22 p.m. Eastern Time, and then add time for that for GMT, because I I apologize. I'm still terrible with it after 10 seasons. (laughs) Um, But that will be out of Vandenberg Air Force Base, and that is expected to be the first West Coast RTLS mission, meaning that it will launch SALCOM-9, as planned, into orbit And the first stage, instead of landing on the West Coast Barge, known by Just Read the Instructions, it will actually be landing back at Vandenberg Air Force Base. Now, this took a little coordination because there was original airspace concerns and things like that and pollution and noise, but they have gotten the okay and they will be landing that booster back at Vandenberg Air Force Base, supposedly on this upcoming launch.
1: That is going to be very interesting to see if they can pull that one off. Uh, and, and, uh, I'm, I have no doubt they're going to be able to pull it, but, uh, it'll be a first and uh, a first for the company a first, I think the first period actually. Yeah.
0: And the other interesting thing is the last big SpaceX West coast night launch, it had this amazing streak coming out the back that people all the way in Los Angeles could see and in Arizona and all over the place and people thought it was aliens or oh, something yeah. crazy. I remember that. Imagine what happens when you've got the second stage doing this beautiful plume with its cloud and then a whole first stage returning too. So people of LA do not freak out.
1: Oh they will, trust me. There'll be UF oh there'll be calls about UFOs and things like that, guaranteed. But just do wait.
0: We'll have to see. But yeah. Uh, so that is set for October sixth and obviously best of luck on that. So speaking of Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, they had another big milestone launch back on September 15th, 2018, and that is of the ICESat-2 mission. That mission will help to observe the ice sheet elevation and sea ice thickness and basically help kind of understand where all of the ice levels are at uh, on our planet as it continues to change and evolve and as climate continues to change. And uh, that mission, not only very important for studying the ice of the planet, but also caps off an amazing history for the Delta 2 as that was the final flight of the Delta II rocket.
1: yeah. yeah so the uh, only instrument that I set to is carrying is called the uh, Advanced Topographic Laser Altimeter System, or ATLAS. It's uh, essentially a laser that is going to be going ahead and measuring the, uh, the, the surface of the Earth, essentially, and measuring the ice and, and so on, as you mentioned. But it's also going to be doing other things with, with the Earth's surface as well. Um, there are some vegetation levels that it's going to be able to take a look at. It will also, indeed, be looking at the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, um, but it will also be doing some other other land uh, uh, analyses as it goes on. Total weight of the spacecraft is about three thousand four hundred eighty-three pounds. It can generate about one thousand three hundred seventy-four watts, and the mission lifetime is expected to be about this is the the standard mission lifetime uh is expected to be about three years although the spacecraft does have on board enough fuel to last for about seven years so if if every if the spacecraft is healthy and and things are, are working well with it it will be operating probably through you know through those seven years isat 2 is also a replacement for uh the original isat mission which was launched back on two, in 2003 and was operated t- through uh, through 2009. So this is a follow up mission to that. Uh, to go ahead, Sawyer, and, and talk a little bit more about. Uh, yeah, this was the final Del- Delta Two launch. Unfortunately, after 30 years, uh, its first launch was back uh, on Valentine's Day of 1989. It uh, it was used for about 155 launches in total, and uh, it had a. a quite a good career with uh, both with uh, with nasa and uh, and other uh, other uses and other uh, you know including the military and and i believe it also had its share of uh, it it maybe not under united launch alliance but i believe it had on its share of commercial launches too um, i believe there was there was one spectacular failure back in 1997 with it
0: Yeah, that's one that, if you've seen the video on YouTube of the rocket exploding spectacularly and damaging all the cars and everything, that's probably the one you're thinking of because there's spectacular footage of a horrible event. But yes, that was, uh, if I'm correct, that was the GPS-2R mission back in 97. Right, right. And that is the uh, only major failure. I mean, it had one partial failure, but that's the only major failure in 155 or 156 launches, I believe.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it, it, the Delta II really, really had a had a good, long, illustrious career, and uh, I believe uh, this. We so we lose a, a medium um, a medium launch capability with uh, with Delta II. I think the only other launch vehicle that is left that could say it's a medium lift launch vehicle is probably Antares uh the other thing too is as i'll mention in passing the final delta 2 that was that was uh put together there were actually five of them there were four uh used uh tory bruno announced of uh, the president of uh, united launch alliance announced during the coverage that the final delta 2 will be uh remanded to the rocket garden at uh, the kennedy space center visitor center so it will have a good home and uh uh, eventually it will, will make its way over there and, uh, we'll, we'll, will go ahead and stand to, uh, to attest to the career of this, uh, this interesting, uh, sort of blue teal colored launch vehicle that's served the United States extraordinarily well during its 30 year career.
0: Oh, absolutely. And it's going to be standing among some of the older Atlas rockets, uh, an Apollo, uh, Saturn 1B that's currently undergoing repairs, but it's it's going to stand out dramatically among that rocking garden that's already there. And the nice thing is anyone in the public that pays to enter the Kennedy Space Center can see it, no additional fee. And uh, I'm sure the next time, Gene, you and I are down for a launch, we'll head on over to the visitor center and see it once it's up. Oh,
1: yeah, camera's at the ready. I believe Sawyer, too, they're going to put it next to... the it's one of its cousins, the uh, the Thor rocket that's standing there there now. So it uh, it's kind of fitting that Delta uh, Delta Two will will stand next to uh, its its good buddy Thor there.
0: Yes, Delta and Thor have a uh, a very close relationship to each other. Yep. So that'll be very nice. And uh, I should point out that uh, one of the first ever launches of a certain version. You know, there's different versions of each rocket. And, uh, yeah, like how there's the Atlas V, 401, 501, Delta IV, medium, heavy, plus, blah, 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 all of those. Same thing with the, uh, Delta II. There's the 600, the 700, and the 700H. I should point out, the first time the 700H was ever launched was back in July of 03, when it launched the Opportunity rover to Mars which I'm going to temporarily interrupt our uh, launch roundup because there's still a few more launches, but I do just want to mention that uh, we're still thinking about Japi, who we lost contact with her a few months back as a dust storm enveloped much of the planet, and we still have yet to hear back.
1: Yeah, and to tease a little bit, we're going to be talking a little bit more about, a, about another Mars rover. It's just got a little bit of a glitch. Uh, the curiosity rover also has a little bit of a com problem that was announced uh, back on September 19th uh, apparently they're having is, is a little bit of a memory issue uh, the rover is having some problems sending back data and essentially this is this is stored engineering and science data uh, that uh, that is you know obviously stored on the uh, on, on the uh, on the spacecraft Um the uh, engineering data is good to have because it basically tells you about the health of the rover. And but I, I, and I don't need to tell you that we do need the science on board. Um, I want to go ahead and stress that the rover is in good shape. Otherwise, it is healthy, it is responding, it is doing stuff. But um, uh, the real-time data is just not getting down properly and it's not a huge deal if it worse comes to very worse they could go ahead and and go to the backup computer and and have the backup computer kind of do do things um this is something they're trying to psych out they're going to go ahead and the engineers are working the problem and we'll just sit tight and hopefully they'll they'll be able to psych out the the primary computer if if worse comes to very worse they'll put the backup computer in the driver's seat
0: yep so it seems like uh Again, curiosity will hopefully be doing just fine, and uh, that's why there is the term redundancy and why it is used so often, for just for cases like this. If something goes wrong, there is always a backup to keep things running.
1: Yeah, and I, I definitely wanted to put this in sorry, because the the there was some news outlets, especially based in the UK, that were just going absolutely, I don't know, um, they were absolutely going info wars on this the, this uh, story in plain English. The the conspiracy theorists were flying around and all this. It was just, uh, so I, I I wanted to go ahead and get the story out and let let folks know. No, it's got nothing to do with the fact that they've discovered something of interest. The interest that, you know, you know, aliens or anything like that. But uh, again, the rover, otherwise, you know, is is healthy. It's still doing work. It's still doing some some good science. So, you know. you know come on curiosity you'll you'll feel better soon i guess you know just like just like me i'm i'm under the weather curiosity's a little under the weather too
0: exactly we'll send both of you some uh tylenol and advil and uh decongestants and hopefully you'll both be fine yeah thanks sir (laughs) (laughs) you're welcome all right so uh Away from that aside, now let's go back to finish up our launch roundup, and uh, we'll go with the most recent to this recording date, which is shortly ago, on September 22nd, 2018, a Japanese H-2B rocket successfully lifting off, carrying with it the HTV-7, that is a resupply mission, to the International Space Station. Launching at 1.52 p.m. Eastern Saturday, 1752 GMT, which was 2.52 a.m. Sunday from the Tanegashima Space Center in Japan. Now that will be going up to the International Space Station in a few days and be spending, I believe it's about a 45-day mission up there, bringing with it more than 3,000 pounds of science. And for the first time in a long time, something other than a SpaceX Dragon capsule will actually be returning science is, is that right Jean yeah
1: so here um, the uh, the infamous little white stork 7 as it's called the um, I, I can't pronounce the Japanese term I do apologize but the uh, it, it, it translates to English as, as white stork seven as white stork the, this is for the first time it's got something very very fascinating on board this is a, a, a small return capsule it's about maybe it's diameter is about maybe a hair under three, three feet. Uh, it's about two feet in height. It weighs about, uh, almost 400 pounds unladen three, 357 pounds if you're counting. And, um, It could be put on board. I believe uh, Brandy Dean, who is doing the uh, uh, play-by-play for the launch, mentioned that it could hold about 30 liters. Now, I haven't done the translation on that, but most of our audience understands what that is. And this will be 30 liters of samples and and, whatever they want to bring down from the International Space Station. And what they hope to do in about 45 days after uh, HTV's mission is over... Um, just before it re-enters, they're hoping to go ahead and, and send a command to uh, have, this, have this small capsule detach from HTV. It will go ahead, re-enter the atmosphere, deploy parachutes, uh, and land in the ocean. There will be a team from JAXA standing by waiting for it, and uh, it will be retrieved. And lo and behold, uh, we'll be able to bring at least a little cargo back. From the the ISS using this this particular method here, it's the first time they've ever used it, and uh, we're hoping that uh, things things go according to plan with it. the uh, The mission other overall is carrying about five tons of uh, of logistics up to the International Space Station, um, including uh, two uh, two Express racks, uh, a life support rack. Um, a life sciences glove box, according to what I'm seeing here from, from, a, from a NASA leaflet. And uh, there's a, a loop heat pipe radiator and also two batteries, um, two ISS uh, uh, lithium-ion batteries uh, that will be uh, installed robotically, and then a follow-up EVA will be done to go ahead and make you know, put in the rest of the connections. I don't know if anybody was watching this, but uh, those uh, LE-7A engines on the um, H2B launch vehicle, they have the, that it, it's really cool to listen, to, listen to a, a, one of the Jackson launches because they have this, this really high pitched whine Once they start, start really, really getting going, those turbos pumps start going and so on. It's, it's really cool to listen to. So if you haven't heard it, uh, go back and, uh, and, and listen to the coverage. It's, it's, it's really, really neat. But the really interesting thing is I think, think, Jax is starting to take a page from SpaceX. Um, they actually during the coverage there was actually some music playing over it, and while they were talking about the uh, uh, the ascent and so on, and it was never they were really trying to make really try to make the coverage interesting. So I guess you know again SpaceX is trying to teach a lot of a lot of the. Uh, the folks that may be looked at as kind of stodgy if you will some new tricks and and new ways of trying to keep their audience glued if you will to the television um, while a lot of these uh, well a lot of the the mission events are going on so uh, uh, y- yeah again there once again on how how I think SpaceX is is, is really trying to impact uh, impact the road you know the road ahead for uh, for covering uh, for covering uh, launches that may not seem all that exciting to people
0: yeah those man those japanese rockets they fly man that's another thing is like they they've got some pickup once they start going too they got the high pitch whining they got that pickup and uh again most importantly though it's got that payload capability going up and now some coming back so it's it's an exciting mission htv7 all the best of luck to uh that and to crew on board that gets to welcome her up uh so while we're talking about the uh, international space station you may have heard about holgate i don't know (laughs) if that's what they're calling it but that's what i'm calling it now uh so a few weeks back aboard the international space station they noticed that there was a hole on the soyuz that was attached to the international space station It, of course, set off a small alarm, and they were able to come up with a temporary patch before they eventually completely patched it over and fixed said hole. Now, the hole was very, very small and very, very minor, so they were under the assumption that this little hole was probably created by a micrometeorite or some small piece of debris that was flying through space that impacted the Soyuz. However, now Russian authorities have come out and said the 2 millimeter hole is not a micrometeorite hole, especially after NASA released pictures of it and how circular it looked. They are saying that it is a drill hole, and that someone with a very shaky hand drilled that. The original claim was possibly sabotaged by one of the astronauts aboard the space station or the cosmonauts, who have all since denied that. They have now gone on to say that it is possible that it may have been someone on the ground that accidentally drilled that hole, and as it went through inspections, they decided to do a quick patch on it to just get the vehicle off the ground, and that patch came loose. What is the answer? We don't know, and that's what they're still investigating, but the most important part is is that the crew on board is safe, and that this is a portion of the Soyuz that does not have crew in it once it re-enters. But regardless, a drilled hole... On a piece that's going on in the space station could have ended catastrophically, no matter how small.
1: Yeah, so To add a little bit more context to what you were saying, this I believe was found in mid-August.
0: It was towards the towards the end of August. Right. Yes. Okay.
1: Um, what it occurred, I believe, and, and it occurred like at uh, the first readings of something going out wrong occurred during the crew's sleep period. This was about maybe seven thirty uh, in the evening local time. Uh, at the uh, Mission Operations Control Center in, in Houston, they collaborated on the line with Korolev, the Russian Mission Control Center there, and uh, the other control centers around the world. And they said, "Well, is it something? Do we need to wake up the crew at this point?" And they said, mm, "No, the, the, there is a leak, but it, it's nothing too serious. Let them sleep, and we'll address it in the morning." You know, when they wake up in the morning, the reason why that's important was that. When I first started following the story, uh, a lot of there was a lot of hullabaloo in 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 the press saying, "Oh my God, the, the the crew's in danger and all this other stuff." No, they weren't in any danger initially, but they it but yeah, you don't want a leak, you don't want an atmosphere leak. So, uh, they woke up. The crew was told what was going on, so they went through their leak check protocols, which means you go ahead, you close all of the the doors uh, to uh, all the modules, you know, to you know, make sure that all of them are airtight. And then, then you start, you know, through process of lanation, you essentially find where the leak leak is going. So it kind of led into the R- Russian segment of the ISS and in turn led into the Soyuz, the orbital module of, of the Soyuz. The orbital module is the, the module, if you're familiar with the Soyuz configuration, the orbital module is, is the spherical module sitting up top um, it's essentially a small a room, if you will, for, for the crew while they're, while they're on orbit. And it's, it's not as Sawyer, you pointed out, it's not a piece of, of the spacecraft that returns, or is it, is it critical for return, but you do want, you know, you want an airtight spacecraft. So they narrowed it down to that. And I believe the, the they said, "Okay, let's try to find isolate where exactly this leak is." So they pulled out some equipment. I believe it was actually the the the, the Soyuz toilet on board. They actually pulled that that out, and behind it, lo and be- behold, was the two mil- millimeter meter hole. And there were some pictures circulating on a couple of NASA sites. I believe too that uh, while they were doing this, I think it it ended up on a. Um, one of the, the, the space-to-ground segments that they do. And um, when they found out that it probably was not, uh, you know, uh, MMOD or micrometeorite orbital de- debris strike, they were like, huh, okay, maybe we got to go ahead and pull this off until we figure out what's going on. So NASA put out a newer rendition of, the, um, of that. They, they pulled all the photographs that they had, from the uh, from the site. They actually yanked it off of that addition to space to ground and put like file footage of the Soyuz sitting, on you know, while uh, uh, the verbiage was talking about a possible MMOD strike. It even got mentioned during the, um, uh, the NASA Advisory Council uh, meeting. I think Wayne Hale was the one that brought it up. But then if you take a look at the photograph that was out there, you'll notice too, and, Sawyer, you pointed this out, there are actually two lines emanating out from outside that looked like you know somebody you know skipped the metal around there with a drill and if you take a look at the hole itself you could actually see there are actually some swirl marks you know in and around the, the the hole there so it does look like it was a drill um it, the way i kind of theorized what ha- had occurred is you know basically somebody on the ground Rather than, you know, risk losing their job, and and I believe uh, Clay Anderson also published the same kind of theory, and I talked about it a little bit too with him, Um, he he mentioned that it could theoretically have been, and again, this is hypothetical, and this is hypothetical on my part too, because I kind of floated the same idea, that maybe somebody along the line, you know, somebody screwed up. And in this case, I think somebody did. They kind of tried to go ahead and cover it up rather than to go ahead and, and you know, put, uh, you know, put their own job at risk. Um, and they patched it, and it just seemed to be a little innocent little patch that they just left it as is, and it looked like things were holding. But unfortunately, whatever they tried to seal it with, it didn't hold. And lo and behold, this happened. Now, the accusation that somebody on board the ISS did it actually came from Dmitry Rosikin, who is essentially Jim Bridenstine's counterpart at Roscosmos. He was the one that floated the idea that a NASA astronaut, trying to end the ISS increment early, went ahead and perpetrated this. He quickly backpedaled on that when Drew Feustel went ahead and said that unequivocally no one on board the International Space Station could have done something something like this. And he, he was not only backing himself up, but he was backing up the entire crew. Also, if you've ever, if, if Sawyer, if, if I recall exactly, you cannot operate a conventional drill in microgravity conditions.
0: Correct. And the torque is also set so that when you spin it, you don't go spinning around with that's, it. Too. That's, there's, a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of science behind a simple drill in space. Admittedly, if it wasn't for those, we wouldn't have cordless power drills on Earth. Hashtag spinoffs. But still... It's very, very difficult and very, very unlikely for it to have been done by someone on board. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. Plus, you have to pull out the back
1: of the toilet. Why would you do that? <laughs> so, um, I mean, let's be serious. You know, something has to come of it because, you know, like it or not, at least up until uh, 2019, when we hope um, either – uh, you know SpaceX crew dragon or the Boeing Cst100 Starliner come online Soyuz is it they, they are the access to space and and you just don't want to have um, something that you can't trust having sole access if you will to uh, to transporting crew to and from the international Space Station you just can't can't have that kind of thing going on. So, uh, we, yeah, you, it's, it, is it in, in the ISS's uh, best interest to try to psych this out and, you know, get to the bottom of what happened? Absolutely. Um, but it's also in the best interest of, of keeping the program going that CST-100 Starliner and SpaceX Dra- Crew Dragon come online as quickly as possible to augment the, the capability that we have with Soyuz and uh it's just going to be good for the program all the way around so i'm i'm looking forward to us getting back into business again and getting you know u.s crew and uh off of the ground here from u.s soil but i'm also looking forward to having two dependable spacecraft complete with new modern Technology to get us to and from the ISS. I don't want to lose faith in Soyuz. It's the only ride in town right now. But you know, when you have stuff like this happen, kind of puts things into into question a little bit. And you can't put your only access into question. But that's where we're at right now. So again, go SpaceX, go Boeing, please by all means necessary.
0: Exactly. And again, safety is always number one. And we am sure there will be a thorough investigation because I'm sure all parties involved that have a hand in the International Space Station are going to want to know what happened here, especially before they decide to send more people up. So this is something that will be kept a close eye on by everyone, including us. And uh, most importantly, though, the crew on board is safe and that part has nothing to do with their actual reentry. So we expect the crew to be just fine. And we hope that is the case. All right, uh, so continuing along now, we do have another awesome mission to mention, and that is Hayabusa 2, which you may remember the first Hayabusa 1 that visited an asteroid. Well, Hayabusa 2 has now created history. It has sent a small lander that has now landed on an asteroid. That's right, for the first time, too, the Minerva Rovers captured pictures of asteroid Ryugu, and taken photos of the surface and sent them back in some stunning new science.
1: There were some spectacular images coming back. One of them was a sort of a blurred image of the uh, of the spacecraft uh, of Hayabusa 2 itself, as the uh, the small little Minerva landers went ahead and made the attempt. Uh, and then you know here they were hopping around the uh, the surface later on. Um, this is a big deal, and the idea is to try to go ahead and take readings of the, of the surface, try to figure out what this thing is actually made of. And I'll tell you, the other thing about this is that there's another team that was watching us really, really close, and I could tell, tell you right now, that was the NASA's OSIRIS-REx team. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, uh, Dante Laurentiis was watching this also with, uh, with, with uh, a great interest as well. Um, because in December, OSIRIS-REx goes in orbit around the asteroid Bennu in search of its own uh, site to pick up some material from the surface of that asteroid and send it back here to Earth. So uh, one of the first things that mission is going to do is to go in orbit around the asteroid, try to find a, a good spot to go ahead and and grab some some samples from and then uh, vacuum up some of the 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 soil samples and then take the whole compartment if you will and put it into a a small um, a small capsule that will be returned to us i believe around i want to say around this same time october 23rd 24th something like that either 2023 or 2024 Um, so we're trying to learn more about these low-flying rocks that are around us. And, yeah, there is a slight threat from asteroid Bennu, um, coming up sometime in, you know, they're talking about the 22nd century, mind you. Uh, so it's not something that, that, you know, you and I have to lose sleep over. But, yeah, you want to make sure that, let's find out what this thing is doing, because there's a possible close shave coming from, uh, from Bennu here so we want to make sure that if we need to deflect it for any reason we know how to do it and we know what this asteroid is made of so uh, um yeah i we're learning more more and more about these asteroids too not just for mining purposes but also these things are kind of um geologic uh time capsules if they if you will these things are um you have to go ahead and, and look at them from that aspect. So you want to go ahead and learn all you can from there because they hold secrets to the early formation of our solar system. So uh, in that aspect, too, it's a it's a pure science mission as well. So hats off. Congratulations to, to the Japanese space agency, JAXA. They've got two, you know, they're two for two this week. They've got both the successful launch of uh, HTV-7 and now... They could put into their quiver the successful landing of the uh, Minerva rovers that are right now bouncing around the the surface of uh, of an asteroid. So humanity, you, you you done good this week. Congratulations.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's some amazing science. I can't wait to see what comes back from it. The pictures may not be the highest quality yet, but they are stunning images that we already have from the surface of an asteroid and they're just bouncing around on there and uh it's amazing and just for size by the way the diameter of these little landers no bigger than a dinner plate so it doesn't have to be big it just has to work and that's what it did let's head on out to california now and uh, i know everyone loves the bfr or the big (coughs) falcon (laughs) Rocket as uh, we continue to call it here. But uh, Elon announced a few things with the BFR. First off, some size and scale changes. And second off, the first private citizen to pay to travel to the moon. So let's begin with the rocket really quickly here. So Elon has unveiled different iterations of his BFR at different IAC conferences, which thanks to Kat for being there for those to help getting us some of those amazing conversations and details. But I digress from that. So, in his announcement this past week, uh, he announced that the new rocket will stand 378 feet, or 118 meters tall, at launch. It will be completely reusable. I should point out that it's about 11% taller than it used to be. Uh, The length of the spaceship, the BFS, as it's sometimes being called, the Big Falcon Spaceship, uh, has gone up from 157 feet to 180 feet. That's 48 to 55 meters. And it's also changed its look a lot it will now be featuring six raptor engines four of which will be the vacuum versions and this whole big craziness that will be able to host a hundred people on board however they've announced that one of their first crewed ones will not host a hundred people it will host one man and eight or nine of his artistic friends and that man is japanese billionaire yusaku mazawa he has purchased the tickets to Fly around the moon. Now, Elon has said that there will be plenty of unmanned tests first, but that once those are all completed, Mazawa and his friends will be going around the moon as soon as 2023, pending smooth development. Hashtag Elon time. But it's, uh, this is pretty ballsy, if I may say so, and keep our clean rating on iTunes, to be able to bring a little, you know, to introduce this new rocket that hasn't flown yet, but to say, hey, we're going to let this person buy a ride on it and take him around the moon?
1: Yeah, Sawyer, I I sat there and listened to this. I I, I was trying to keep an open mind, but not so open that my brains fell out on the floor. Mazawa came on, you know, kind of stealing the Kennedy line, saying, I choose to go to the moon, and did his introductory, you know, about me and so on, saying that he used to be a skateboarder over in Santa Monica and all this. And, um he went ahead and, uh, discussed his, his company. And to, I'm going through my notes from, from that, from that evening on September 17th, when all this was announced, he thought how going to the moon, and I just knew this was going to be in this wood pile sooner or later. He thought about how going to the moon could contribute to world peace. And I'm like, yeah, I knew that was coming. Um, but, um, what he's trying to do is he he's, he's, he's a, a frustrated artist, apparently in his own right. and he's trying to go ahead and, and produce art, if you will, that will get more and more interest in spaceflight and so on. Now he himself has invested untold an undisclosed amount of money, in this project when you say you're going to go ahead you're going to build a launch vehicle and a uh a crude launch vehicle plus a large booster okay that is the large booster has to go ahead and be powerful enough maybe not on this first launch but powerful enough to go ahead and loft the entire stack plus 100 people inside a spacecraft and you're going to do all of this by 2023, as you as you pointed out, Sawyer. That's 2023, Elon time, and that this whole project is going to cost and and must kind of put the price tag in total at about five billion dollars. He doesn't expect it. He says it's not going to be lower than two billion dollars, and it's not going to be higher overall. Than 10 if i'm not mistaken he mentioned that figure during the during the the conference too but i'm sitting here and i'm i'm like this is gonna go way beyond that um and i'm wondering where he's gonna get the money for all of this now he says it's from uh the residuals from you know launching commercial crew uh the the and the and the cargo missions from NASA and the, he's hoping to make a profit from the uh, commercial missions that he's flying, you know, launching satellites and, and something like that. I do know that the air force is very much interested in the Raptor engine and they may be investing in that a little bit, but um, that's just not going to cover it. Um, he's going to need a lot more as far as an investment in this. I've, been told by some of the, the SpaceX faithful that there are people clamoring, banging down the doors over in over at Hawthorne to invest, and I'm sitting there, okay, where are these people? Is that going on behind the scenes? How come we don't hear about it? Because if I were somebody like this, I would say, yeah, I'm investing in this no, I'm not going to tell you about the about the amount but I would wear it like a like a badge of courage if you will and first I, I don't see 2023 period um, heck I don't even see 2025 um, I'm more thinking really really toward the end of the decade if that um, for this entire for this entire mission to, to, to come to uh, to flour- flourish, if you will. So I think Mr. Mazawa is going to be waiting, uh, waiting some time, for uh, for his seat to materialize, along with these seven or eight individuals that he's going to going to bring along with him, or should I say, these seven or eight artists that he's going to bring along with him. Mark Sawyer, I don't know what your feelings are are on this one, but um, my thought is again, I don't see this thing happening at twenty twenty three. I don't see this happening twenty twenty five. Heck, because of the money that may be available. I don't see this happening until <laughs> until much later in, in this particular decade. Sawyer so are we are we kinda of looking at the uh the space version of the spruce goose here or, or, or what?
0: Uh ooh, I was not anticipating that one. Um there's a comparison you don't hear very often. I mean, you've got a rich billionaire designing their own super large Oversized-type craft with great ambitions. The difference is I do expect Elons to fly more than once. When will that be? Uh, That I don't know. 2023, I'm going to have to go with you and say probably not 2023, at least for the manned one. For development, I could see them doing test flights on BFR starting in 2023, with eventually, as you're talking about, getting crude flights and eventually this commercial flight going by the end of the decade, the late 2020s. That's just my personal opinion. I think that with the way the design keeps changing, and I get why it keeps changing, but I feel like we need to set a design, stop and say, that's where it's going to be. This is the design that we will be using. That way engineers can just keep starting to build as opposed to, well, now we're going to make it taller and now we're going to change the engine configuration, things like that. And again, it's all personal opinion. I think once they get a design set that doesn't keep changing every year, and I get maybe as they're designing it and as they're building it, they'll have to tweak that. I get, but I think once they come up with a final plan and a final design, as with Elon, time give it five or six years, and they'll start testing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in all honesty, the the Lem went through design changes too. Uh, you know, many of them. I mean, it lost its windows, it lost its seats, it lost pretty much a lot of the original concept does not look at all like like what the the, the vehicle that that eventually flew to the moon and with all with all due respect but i don't know i'm i'm thinking every time one of these these large grandiose projects comes along and everybody kind kind of kind of you know sits there and says oh we're going to do this that the other thing i i sit there and I'm like okay the first question i think of immediately is where is the money coming from and i that's where i don't think a lot of these timelines are going to happen
2: y'all want to hear from me i've been quiet for a while by all, yeah oh, we want you to you. dive in yeah i'm sorry I, I i've been yawning mostly because this whole topic is of um i don't know it, let me put it this way if any taxpayer money goes into this i'll be offended if any money gets diverted from planetary science and U.S. Uh, crewed space flight, you know, plans, I'd be offended. Uh, if you want to get a a tour bus and go to the moon, sure, go ahead, but let the people that are riding the bus pay the gas. And like I said, yawn. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Mark, I couldn't have put it any better. And I think that's that. That's where we're trying to go. That that's what we're trying to determine: who is really, really paying the freight for this? I know um, was, uh, the uh, the gentleman uh, uh, Meizawa. He has put a sizable amount of amount of money forward. It's an undisclosed amount, so I'm guessing it's quite a bit of money. I'm not even going to speculate on how much it was so he's he's invested he, he's essentially put his money where his mouth was and i believe elon said so during the said those very words during the uh during the event um and he also said to you this is going to be a, a dangerous undertaking you know it's, it's never been tried it's never been done before as far as, as far as privately is concerned so it's not going to be a walk in a park so i say that with anybody where is the money going to come from to pay for this and if you've got a solid plan, then, you know, if, if the program's funded, then, hey, rock and roll, you know, and, and may you succeed and may the wind be at your back. But right now, the, the funding is cloudy for this thing. And until I see a steady flow of money coming into SpaceX, you're marked for this and not taxpayer funding that should be going to improve, as you pointed out, Mark. You know that that should be going to go ahead and and improve the the what we're investing in, which is the uh, which is the Crew Dragon and the and the Falcon Nine. Um, I just don't see it happening.
0: I mean, these are all great points here, and uh, again, I just like to point out Elon time as a thing. And my <laughs> viewpoint is this will happen. It will probably go through a few more design changes, and I'm excited to see. At least the one thing I am glad though is the person that was selected uh however much they spent on it at least they're choosing to take artists along and not make this just a solo flight but an opportunity to bring along some other people to from different art mediums to experience the beauty of it and the difference of it and uh to hashtag dear moon so i think that part at least is nice and you know we'll, we'll see what actually happens with the mission itself. So, yeah, but, uh, of course, we want to know what you think. Uh, Obviously, it's been a major topic, been covered nationally and internationally by all the major networks, too, and this is just our personal analysis of it. I know many of you can feel free to email us and call us SpaceX haters, but uh, if you have genuine opinions on it and uh, what you think is going to happen, time frame, what you think of the design, all of this, feel free to shoot us a message, mailback at talkingspaceonline.com. You can tweet us at Talking Space. We are also Talking Space on Facebook, and Google+. And I'm really interested to hear what you guys think, what you figure out for time frame, and uh, just your thoughts on the whole mission and the evolution of BFR. So before we go now, uh, I always love these stories. Mark, you always come in with these unique stories that you're never going to find anywhere else that always just intrigue. I don't know how you do it. But uh, now for this one, I know a lot of people have heard of the planes like NASA 905 that used to carry the space shuttles, but... Mark, you got a chance to see NASA 502. What? Tell us a little bit about what that is.
2: Well, um, I'm gonna first start off with telling you some of the main topics that I'm gonna elaborate on. Hurricane Florence, the FAA Gainesville, Florida, NASA, United States Air Force. So back to the beginning here. Uh, went into work. Uh, Tuesday morning this past week, and what do I see on the ramp across from our office, which is the general aviation fixed base operator side of the airport? I see a beautiful blue and white aircraft, and I go, wow, that's a a government plane. What's that on the tail? Oh, that says NASA. What? (laughs) I've never seen, you know, that particular NASA aircraft, and I thought, what is it? So I got the tail number and I did some digging, and uh, a few days later I went out and talked to the crew uh, that was getting ready to go fly, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute, but back to Hurricane Florence. Hurricane Florence, as we record tonight, Sunday night, uh, Associated Press has a story out a few minutes ago, says Florence the week after, thousands brace for more flooding. And that is exactly what this aircraft was at Gainesville, Florida to uh, support. NASA sent one of their aircraft from the NASA Airborne Science Program to Gainesville, Florida for the week. The Airborne Science Program, uh, it's within the Earth Science Division of NASA and it's responsible for providing aircraft systems that further science and advance the use of satellite data. The aircraft that I saw is a NASA C-20A, which is the military designation hence my mention of the Air Force. It's a Gulfstream III, which is a business jet, structurally modified, instrumented by the NASA Armstrong Flight Research Center, and it serves as a multi-role cooperative research platform for earth science community variety of flight research customers. Uh, This particular aircraft carries the military designation C-20A, was obtained from the United States Air Force in 2003. NASA 502 can support a single science flight of up to approximately six flight hours. In in addition, NASA 502 can also support two science flights a day and one day up to nine hours total flight time with one ground crew. Its uh, owner operator, of course, is NASA Armstrong Flight Research Center. Um, Hurricane Florence, back to the hurricane. Their storm surge and heavy inland Uh, rainfall is going to impact the coastal barrier islands, they expect, and of course we have seen it produce widespread river and flash flooding. It's challenging to observe this through optical remote sensing due to cloud cover, vegetation. There is a synthetic aperture radar uh, that can be used to make observations, but the publicly available wavelengths for that are often obscured by vegetation. So it's important in the urban-suburban interface where this vegetation obscures the impacts to people in their communities. People in communities. Real lives, real people. Stream flow models provide some insights into the flood extent through stream gauges or water level gauges, depth grids, and other outputs. This, uh, here's an acronym that I hadn't run into before in combination. UAVSAR. Uninhabited Aerial Vehicle synthetic aperture radar. This UAV SAR, which was a pod on the C20A, it provides a unique opportunity to map actual flood water extent to provide number one validation to physical models two opportunities to improve those models three new data sets in a challenging complex terrain vegetation where flood monitoring from the SAR needs continuous improvement so they they get to improve their science by doing the science and it has near real-time and reduced latency. In other words the imagery that they get from the flight is available immediately for the parties that can can benefit from it. Now the first day I went out and talked to one of the crew um, the gentleman told me that they can measure floodwaters to a two centimeter accuracy. Two centimeters is less than one inch for us U.S. folk. So they can measure floodwaters. Um, This UAVSAR is a joint project developed between the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the Armstrong Flight Research Center. It's been flight validated or is being flight validated in this Gulfstream C20A. It's a specially designed pod. It's going to be interoperable with manned and unmanned aircraft. In the C-20A, which is the military version of the Gulf Stream, it provides a platform not only to test and evaluate the new radar, but it's also used to gather data for geological studies. Now, The crew told me that they've also used it to measure ground level changes as a result of earthquakes, and he mentioned again that same two centimeter uh, measurement accuracy. I got to see inside the aircraft. It's a a good-sized business jet which I have very little uh, familiarization with because I'm a ground guy. I'm not an aircraft guy. Uh, They have seats for 10 crew when they're relocating across the country or across the world. They had two equipment racks in there. One rack was a a rack that would be about uh, chest high, roughly, if you were standing in front of it. Uh, And that rack had the equipment to operate the radar. And the other rack was their navigation station, which uh, the navigation that they program in for a flight allows a very unique flight track, which hopefully we can include an image that I got from um, FlightAware. So if you do a search FlightAware NASA 502, uh, it'll probably pop up with a recent flight that they made, and their flight track is very unique. They, they come out of North Florida, Gainesville, Florida, they fly out to the coast, they go up the coast, and then as they get to the North Carolina, South Carolina area, just to give a kind of a description of it, they fly a, kind of an elongated oval, like a racetrack pattern. So they fly in, make a turn, come back out. And then they shift sideways and they fly another another uh, racetrack pattern. And what they what they get from this is some very unique uh, radar imagery, which you can take a look at on the webpage page uavsar.jpl.nasa.gov. There's another web page that I wasn't aware of until I got to looking for all this. It's called disasters. Dot .nasa.gov dot and of course one of the links that you can find from that page is Hurricane Florence 2018 and it shows uh one picture that was updated on uh, September 21st it shows an aerial photograph showing some flooding and then it shows this uh, UAVSAR image <laughs> which I'm telling you, you've got to have some smarts and some training and experience to interpret this because the imagery itself is like, wow, what am I looking at? And I know it's a lot of detailed uh, information, but but grasping it and making sense of it is beyond me. But fortunately, it's our job to tell you about the cool stuff. And if you want to dig into it further, uh, this is a starting point, some of the websites that I mentioned. Oh, I did talk to the crew chief for the aircraft, and I said, uh, how does it work for the support that, that you as a crew chief need with this aircraft to keep everything in the condition you'd like to have it in? He said, our support is is really good. He said, anytime we have a question, if there's anything that involves safety, all we have to do is kind of raise the flag, you know, speak up and say, you know, we've got some concerns and no matter what our mission is, no matter what we've planned to do you know the aircraft is is on the ground until we can resolve it. Uh, The first day that I was out and and talked to the crew for a couple minutes they were getting ready to go and I thought well I'll go out on the airport I work for the FAA I can go out anywhere on the field I want to so I went out next to a taxiway anticipating that they were about to taxi out and take off and I heard them call uh, the tower and ask for their clearance And uh, the tower said, stand by, we'll get back to you in a minute. So tower called him back and he didn't answer. So about 10 minutes later, uh, the tower called the aircraft again. And he said, yeah, we tried calling earlier. And he said, oh, well, we had a power glitch. And uh, the tower said, gee, that's not a good thing when you're about to leave the earth to have a power glitch. It ended up they were actually delayed close to three hours in their takeoff time. But there again, that was their priority. Safety is first. So uh, they were late getting out out to fly. They did fly they got some good science from it. I just think it's really interesting to see a little bit of NASA that's other than the rockets. It's part of the earth sciences uh, division. It's things that matter to people on the ground that will improve. Because if you think about forecasting, anything involving weather, What you want is a perfect forecast. And of course, everybody that that listens to a weather prediction, you know, we all have our stories of, yeah, it was way hotter than they said. It never got as cold as they said. They told us that this was going to happen, that we were going to have a flood, that hurricanes, there are going to be a storm surge. And so you want those forecasts to be as accurate as possible. And the more accurate they become, the more people can trust them and when a warning goes out you need to evacuate it'll be because of science that NASA 502 supports in combination with river gauges, with buoys out in the ocean, with all of these things you put it all together and you give the scientists and the forecasters the capability of giving the best product possible and to me it's just talk about money well spent that is something that it would be a crime if money ever got taken from programs like this to support a, a tour bus going to the moon. Not to drag that up again, but uh, this UAVSAR program, I think, is really interesting. They do some great work with it, and uh, just wanted to tell you about it.
1: Mark, yeah, agreed. This is, this is good stuff, and, and this is one of the reasons why... You know when when we say that that you know space technology is coming back to you not only to space technology but that 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 first A in, in NASA stands for aeronautics and this is a, a another way how the aeronautics area in NASA is kind of given back and and trying to, to help individuals weather a storm and I, I, I have family in North Carolina and and Luckily, they were far enough inland to, to not to be be impacted by the storm, as as much as the f- people along the shore, but uh, uh, and and people anywhere along those riverbanks that are dealing with, with with what they're dealing with, I can I, I just can't. My heart goes out to them because I just can't fathom what this what, what they're facing, and it's vehicles like this this the, the NASA five hundred two that are really really trying to keep an eye on things and they're really really trying to go ahead and give not only this forecaster's data but also what's really going on on the ground i mean mark that that was an incredible find i do have a question for you though sir um the pod you were talking about how you you know did did, you actually saw that right you know the one that's underneath the aircraft how big would you say that thing
2: is uh yeah here i am really tough at estimating sizes I would say it's probably in the neighborhood of uh, eight feet or so long, and uh, you know, two feet in diameter or less. It's such that uh, you know, this is a Gulfstream three, a medium-sized business jet, sitting on the ramp. Uh, it's got a few inches clearance between the uh, the pod and the asphalt. Uh, That's what I was yeah, wondering. It's, it's it's tight fit. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we can use the, the pictures that I've got, uh, but I've, I, I think Sawyer may have seen a couple of them, and um, you know, maybe we can put a picture in there just for people to see. And of course, you can definitely see uh, imagery through, through the websites that I mentioned with. Just do a search for NASA 502 and um, go to the, um, the Armstrong Flight Research Center, the NASA Airborne Science Program, uh, and you'll you'll be able to, to pick it up.
0: Oh, yeah. It's a, and it's a beautiful plane. And it seems like it's just this fancy private jet. And then you've got some great photos just inside of how they've decked it all out for science and the external instruments on it and just the great work that it's doing. And, again, who would think that it would be flying in and out of Gainesville, Florida, where you <laughs> happen to be working to uh, – Head up to the Carolinas. Talk about you know bizarre, yeah, but yeah, yeah, awesome. it's
2: uh, it's kind of I. I'm one of the lucky guys. Hey, I, I get to go to work. Uh, I get to see airplanes that I still look at and hear hear one overhead and go, gee, what's that? Wow, that's a pretty airplane. And you know, I I love it, love it.
0: That's awesome. We love when you get to share that with us like this, Mark. So thank you so much.
1: Indeed, thanks a lot, Mark. This was this was fascinating.
0: And with that, I think that's the perfect place to end this episode on such a fantastic story. So I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulga. Thank
1: you, Sawyer. And again, uh, we we missed a bit of a, a, a landmark for uh, for our 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 little engine that could here um, back in. Uh, you are, you're yeah. Right. Back in, um, uh, I guess it was the first week of, uh, of September. We, we were. Uh, we turn officially nine years old.
0: On 09, 09, 09 was our start date, and now we are 09. Yes,
1: exactly. And um, to celebrate that too, we we ended up on uh, on iHeartRadio. So, uh, if you're you're trying to download us uh, there, you can now. Uh, of course, we've been on TuneIn for a while, and uh, of course we're on Google Play, iTunes. Again, thank you, everybody, for keeping this little engine that could on track and on and going on because it's because of you, we continue to do this, and uh, uh, because of you that that you have an interest in space and space flight, we'll continue to do this, and as long as you continue to down us, download us, we'll we'll continue to be here. So, again, folks, thanks a whole bunch for being over here for uh for our, our ninth year and for year 10 boy do we have some stuff in mind but we're not we're it's still in the planning stages i don't want to spoil it
0: oh absolutely yes thank you to everyone who has listened to us whether this be your first episode your first year with us or whether you've been with us since september 9th 2009 when we first came out or any point in between our shuttle launch coverage is live we we have been very fortunate these last nine years and these last 10 seasons to have been able to do so much and bring it all to you. And starting January 1st, 2019, Talking Space will begin its 10-year celebration. And a celebration that will be indeed. So we hope that you will all join us all the way through the rest of this year, too, because we still have some more great stuff coming. And then, but again, Gene, thank you for joining us and thank you for being a part of this.
1: Oh, Sawyer, heck. I mean, when we started doing this uh, back around 2009, when I came up with the idea, it was sort of, it was just kind of sitting there on the shelf for a little, for the longest time. Um, And then finally, I got some really good, talented, bright people to to help put this thing together. Um, it, it had to be an ensemble show the, the, the way I was looking at it, but I just could not find the, the right people for it. So it kind of sat there on the shelf from about maybe 2006 through 2009. And then I got absolutely blessed with, with a group of individuals that came together on this thing. And uh, we, we kind of put our heads together and, and developed a show that we would want to listen to. And I hope uh, hope the, the audience continues to support us. So again, um, thanks a whole bunch. I hope we're we we we're doing a good job by you guys, and I hope uh, uh, you know we'll continue to to churn out some quality content. But you know, gang, I couldn't do it without without what you, Mark, Cat, anybody else that's made a con- contribution to this thing. I, I, it just wouldn't be possible.
0: Exactly, and I just realized everyone who's on here for our ninth anniversary show was here on episode 101, or I think at that point we didn't even have a season for it, it was just 001. We didn't have a name for the show yet, to be honest. That is true, we weren't called Talking Space until our third episode, which was about this week, because then we were weekly before we came bi-weekly, so yes. Um, But thank you as well for joining us all the way since episode one, Mark Gratterman.
2: Here today, gone today. Uh, nah, it's good to be here. I appreciate, uh, especially the work that that Gene, you, and Sawyer put into this. You do an awesome job. I'm glad to be a part of it.
0: We are honored to have you be a part of it. You add such uniqueness and some great stories. Like again, like who'd have thought that where you're working, a NASA plane would just fly in and we'd get a whole awesome story about the work NASA Armstrong is doing with hurricanes. I mean, it's fantastic. It's so unique. And thank you next episode we hope you will stay with us for next episode it is not a news episode but it is i believe a world exclusive as we kind of teased at the end of uh episode 1008 uh we got an exclusive question and answer session with a group of maybe about 50 people Uh, with the one and only eugene parker for which the parker solar probe was named and who discovered solar winds and things like that it was a surprise 45 minute q a nasa television has aired segments of it but nobody i believe besides those that were in that room have heard it in its entirety until now that will be recorded forever maybe not live streamed but we will have the entire recording of that with some of our own additional commentary coming up next week and following that again as we mentioned at the beginning Kat Robinson is at the IAC 2018 and she will be getting some amazing stuff for us there so stay with us we still have amazing things coming and it's not even our 10th year yet and we're getting that much closer to it but thank you for joining us tonight and until next time as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are Launching at 1:52 p.m. Eastern, Saturn, Saturn Day. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, gone to planets now.